Get ready for the smartest bundle in streaming. Six streaming services for the intellectually curious. Featuring Curiosity Stream with the best collection of documentary films and TV shows. Psalm TV and great stories from the world of wine. Taste Made for the fun side of food and travel. Topic with the best thrillers and crime stories. And so much more. From nature to history, technology to food, mystery to adventure. Get six streaming services for one low price. And less than $6 a month, it's the best deal in streaming. Learn more and sign up now at smartbundle.com. Cheddar was my best friend. My absolute best friend. It was my only family, too. It had just been me and Cheddar against the world since the day I found him, shivering and caked in mud in the alley behind my house. I cleaned him up and nursed him from a tiny handful of kitten to a massive orange tom half the size of me. Cheddar was the biggest cat I ever saw. People used to remark on it all the time. He's the size of a dog, they'd exclaim in delight. And then usually some other stupid joke, either about how much he ate or the size of what he left behind in the litter box. Mostly I just rolled my eyes and smiled. He saw me through the hardest times of my life, from high school to college, from that crappy job in retail and both of my breakups. Every time I reached for Cheddar, he was there, a bright, purring, constant presence in my life, keeping me company, supporting me, soaking up my tears when the nights got too hard and too long. He was there for every one of my triumphs, too. Somehow, with him at my side, I managed to graduate not only high school, but college too, something I'd never really imagined I'd be able to do. He was there when I came home from my last shift at the store and when we moved into our nice new apartment that overlooked the river. And he was there the day Danny came back. Danny was my stepbrother, was my stepbrother. I thought I'd left him and every other reminder about those dark days behind me when I left my hometown and never looked back. I don't know how he found me, but I knew why. Since the day his dad married my mom, Danny had threatened, no, promised, that he was going to kill me. I'd say I don't know why, but I do. Danny was unwell, deeply, desperately unwell. There was something really wrong with Danny and everyone knew it, had always known it. But Danny was a big boy too, and everyone, including his own father, was afraid of him. They'd try to get him diagnosed once, but Danny put an end to that real fast. I'd never done anything to Danny, but that didn't mean anything. Danny just liked to hurt. Things, people, animals. It didn't matter. And the smaller, more helpless it was, the more Danny liked to hurt it. Which I guess made me the perfect target. He'd hated me, especially. But I'd figured, hoped and prayed to, that once I got out of town, he'd forget about me. Out of sight, out of mind, you know. It's stupid and cowardly to say, but I guess some part of my teenage mind hoped he'd find a new target. Sick and stupid. A horrible thing to wish on anyone. I'm not proud of it. I've grown up a lot since then. So a Danny, I guess, and just in a different way. He was bigger than I remember him being. He confronted me in the parking lot when I came home. The complex had security, but only inside the building. They've probably fixed that now, I imagine. 
I think I must have known this day was coming, at least to some extent, ever since the lawyers had started calling. I knew there had to be a reason, and every time I heard the words life insurance and estate in a message I had a pretty good feeling I knew what that reason was. But I didn't want any of it. I wanted no part of that life. Not even the money. I'd worked hard to get to where I was. Just me and Cheddar. I didn't want or need any reminders of the first 16 years of my life. And yet, it looked like the reminders had found me, live and in the flesh. Go away, Danny, I muttered, clutching the little cardboard box to my chest, wishing I hadn't left my pepper spray in the car. My eyes felt raw and gritty. I couldn't have been in my right mind, or maybe I was just so upset that I didn't care anymore. Or maybe it had been just 16 years and I wasn't a kid anymore. I guess it amounts to the same thing, because I just shouldered past him and his stupid, leering greeting. Hey, that pissed him off. The smile melted right off of his face. Don't walk away from me. He tried to grab me by the shoulder, but I'd been taking self-defense classes pretty much since I left home. I broke his hold and turned around. I said, go away, Danny, I repeated, very slowly and very clearly. Seeing me not afraid anymore, I think that made him very angry. Very, very angry. Not just pissed, but murderously mad. He turned red and started reaching for his pocket. A gun, I thought, my blood turning to ice in my veins. I should have known better. That wouldn't have been personal enough for Danny. Slow enough for Danny. He pulled a knife instead and lunged at me. He was big, but slow. I got out of the way, but the tip of the knife snagged the bottom of the box and must have pierced the bag inside. Powdery white ash came flying out. It exploded out, actually, all over Danny's face. We both howled, him in rage, me in horror and grief. He was rubbing at his face with both hands, staggering away from me, and for a brief instant, I thought I saw a shape take form out of the cloud of ash. A cat. A big, beautiful, long-haired cat. Attacking Danny, hissing and spitting and going for the eyes. The back of Danny's heel caught the curb. I watched him stagger, and when he went down, I heard the crack of his head against the pavement. And I knew in the bottom of my heart that Danny wasn't going to be a problem anymore. I gathered what I could of the ashes back into the box and called 911. Cheddar waited with me by my side until they arrived. Technically, he's sitting on my mantle right now, but he doesn't like to stay there. He likes to go places with me. I know because sometimes when I turn my head, I catch a glimpse of a big, beautiful orange tom out of the corner of my eye. And I smile because I know. They say adopting a pet is for life. No one said it was theirs. We talked and giggled in the absence of any supervision until the substitute teacher opened the door a few minutes after the morning announcements had confirmed that Mrs. Pendleton was out sick. A chubby elderly woman sauntered in, her veiny skin sagged and jostled with each step, and a foul stench accompanied her as she passed me on her way to the podium. Mrs. Hartfield, she etched, painfully slowly, on the chalkboard. 
She turned to us. Good morning, children, she said in a grainy voice. I am so excited to be here today. I spent 25 years teaching first graders like you. It's nice to be back. My friend Ryan spoke what was on all of our minds. But Mrs. Hartfield, we're in the fifth grade. Please raise your hand before speaking, child, said Mrs. Hartfield. We're going to do some basic reading instruction today. Please turn to page seven. Mrs. Hartfield set a textbook she carried in with her onto the podium and flipped it open. Ryan and I exchanged a perplexed look as we opened our math books to a page we'd already covered. Please read aloud with me, said Mrs. Hartfield. The dog ran to the house. The dog saw the child. The dog ate the child. Mrs. Hartfield, said Lucy, who sat behind me. Are you sure you're in the right classroom? Child, said Mrs. Hartfield. Please remember to raise your hand before asking a question. Lucy raised her hand, which Mrs. Hartfield promptly ignored. I understand if some of these words are difficult for you, said Mrs. Hartfield. As she spoke, I noticed that she had missing teeth, and those that she did have were discolored. This may be advanced for six and seven-year-olds, but please try to read along with me. She continued, even as none of us could join her. The dog had died. The child had wept. But the dog did not stay dead. The dog dug out of the grave. The dog came home. The dog ate the child. She paused and looked around the classroom. Well, she said, you all certainly aren't very energetic today, are you? She pointed at me. Boy, why don't you come up here and read from my book? I'll guide you through each word. We can get through this passage together. A nervous chill ran through me. I probably looked petrified. I had no intention of obeying her instruction. Child, she said sternly, come up here or I'll have no choice but to notify the principal that you are refusing to participate. I may even have to make a phone call to your parents. All the warning signs ran through my brain. I knew on an instinctual level that something was very wrong with this person and that I should stay as far away from her as possible. Can I go in his place? Asked Ryan. Mrs. Hartfield's eyes shifted to Ryan's seat and a moment later her head awkwardly turned to catch up. Very well, she croaked. A sense of relief went through me. Our class watched in quiet suspense as Ryan slowly approached her. He was sweaty and he grew visibly uncomfortable with each step. I could only imagine how much worse her smell was up close. Mrs. Hartfield handed Ryan the textbook, which I could now see was tattered and missing portions of pages. Then she pulled up the chair from the teacher's desk and sat in it. Please, child, come sit on my lap, she said. Don't do it, I wanted to scream at Ryan. He stood still and shook his head. Violently, Mrs. Hartfield grabbed Ryan and pulled him onto her. Ryan had recently started a growth spurt and should have weighed too much for Mrs. Hartfield to be comfortable. Despite this, Mrs. Hartfield's face settled into a long, satisfied smile. Ryan turned absolutely pale. I could tell that he wanted to get away, but a combination of fear and Mrs. Hartfield's grip kept him paralyzed. Mrs. Hartfield resumed reading from the book. The dog dug out of the grave. Please, child, 
Say it with me. The dog dug out of the grave. Ryan turned helplessly towards the other students. Tears were in his eyes. She's cold, he stammered. He wet his pants. What a mess you've made, screamed Mrs. Hartfield. How dare you? Let him go, I yelled. Ryan shoved at her as he tried to escape from her lap and her apparently strong grip. Mrs. Hartfield started to cough as if the force from Ryan had triggered a physical reaction within her. Her coughs grew increasingly violent. And for a moment, Mrs. Hartfield appeared to settle down. Then without warning, her expression turned to panic. Ryan gazed at her with terrified eyes as her mouth opened wide. She let out a massive groan as she vomited pink liquid all over my friend. The disgusting, chunky substance covered his face and ran down his body as he cried out in absolute horror. The rest of the class screamed as we watched this unfold. As she continued to spew the rosy liquid, her head started to tilt. Her skin steadily shifted to the bottom right of her chin, where it formed a drooping bulge. Her eyes disconnected and drifted to the same spot. The weight of it all pulled off the remaining skin from her face, until it all detached and fell onto the floor as a half-liquidated ooze. Her grip finally loosened, allowing Ryan to stumble away. All over her, skin steadily departed, melting into a pile within the large puddle of pink liquid that had formed around her. We watched, repulsed, as the remaining visible portions of her body disintegrated into pure skeleton. We were soon shuffled out of the classroom by the police. They had arrived at the school after a body had been found in the parking lot in the car of the real substitute sent to teach us that day. She had been stripped of much of her skin and flesh, all of which was later determined to have been attached to the bony frame of the woman who presented herself as Mrs. Hartfield. We didn't go back to school for weeks. The police asked us a lot of questions, and many of us underwent psychiatric treatment. Ryan needed years of counseling. His parents homeschooled him for the next two grades. And I never understood much more about what happened until recently. I browsed an archive of old issues of the local newspaper. The night before Mrs. Hartfield showed up to teach us, an incident had transpired in the local cemetery. The article described how, during the night, a hole appeared in front of a headstone. It led six feet under to an old casket, which had been found empty the next morning. The casket had belonged to a Susanna Hartfield, who had passed away in the 1970s after decades of teaching young children in the very room where my class of fifth graders had been on that day, forever etched into our memories. I don't know how she regained sentience after so long, or how what was left of her remains made it to the surface, but I do know what drove her to steal the flesh of the poor substitute and to try to take her place. Once a teacher, always a teacher, as the saying goes. My freshman year of high school began just days after my parents and I moved to a new town. Naperville, Illinois. They told me about the move just weeks before it happened. I was opposed to the idea, to say the least. 
I spent my entire life in Kentucky. It was where all my friends were. The only reason my parents ever wanted to move was because they were paranoid after a man a few blocks away from us was found murdered. This was undeniably disconcerting, but the idea of moving away because of it was completely absurd, which is exactly what I told my parents. But it didn't matter what I said. They insisted that we leave as soon as possible. They chose Naperville because it was the town in which they'd spent their childhoods. I was enrolled in Southview High School, the same high school they had attended. It was my first day there. I was eating lunch in the cafeteria and, as one could expect, I was alone. I didn't know a single person in the entire school. At the moment, this didn't matter to me. I was in no mood to socialize. I thought about my friends back in Kentucky. It was still summer for them, as my new school started a week earlier for whatever reason. They were all probably playing Xbox together, and I was missing it. I looked up to see an older boy walking in my direction. He was probably a senior, or at least a junior. I expected him to just walk right past me, so I was surprised when he took the seat across from mine. Hi, he said. My name's Rupert. Flummoxed by his decision to converse with me, I simply replied, My name's Jeffrey. It was then that I noticed that he didn't have a lunch tray. Where's your lunch? I asked. He shrugged. I don't need one. Do you not have money? He shook his head. No, I'm good. Don't worry about it. Okay. I stared at him with fascination. His look was right out of the 1980s. He wore a thick leather jacket over a white t-shirt and had long blonde hair that he wore in a mullet. I presume this because he wanted to be unique, which I thought was laudable. You new here? He asked. Yeah, I said. My family's just moved here from Kentucky. How do you like it so far? He asked. I thought about my answer for a moment and decided not to tell him how I really felt. It's nice. He chuckled. But you'd rather be in Kentucky, right? I nodded sheepishly, wondering what gave it away. Moves can be that way sometimes, said Rupert. You'll get used to it. You got any siblings? No, I answered. You know anyone here? No, I repeated. Why'd you guys move? Ah, uh, well... I rolled my eyes just thinking about how ludicrous this answer would sound. A guy in our neighborhood got murdered. My parents got scared and wanted to get out of there. So I take it they never caught the murderer, said Rupert. Yeah, I don't think they have. Parents are weird, Rupert said after a brief pause. This, I could agree with. Have you ever looked into your parents? He asked me curiously. I was perplexed. Why, you mean like, Googled them? Um, yeah, something like that. No, I answered. Why? He shrugged again. You'd be surprised what you might find. You should do it sometime. Okay. I said, still a bit mystified. Lunch ended shortly after. Four hours later, I was sitting up in my room working on my math homework. My teacher assigned a double-sided worksheet on the first day. Something that had never happened at my old school, or any other school I'd been to. The moment I finished the worksheet, I stood up and walked to my door. I could finally go and play Xbox. I hoped that some of my friends were online, but just before I left the room, I remembered Rupert telling me to look up my parents. I couldn't deny that I was a little curious. 
I decided to do a quick search and walked over to my computer. Looking back, it would have made more sense to search for them individually, but I googled them simultaneously, typing in my mother's name, followed by my father's. The first link I found was to an article about a 17-year-old boy who had been murdered. Both surprised and intrigued, I clicked on it. It was an old article from 1987. The first paragraph explained that the boy that had been found stabbed to death in a forest in Naperville, Illinois. This made me think for a moment. My parents had both turned 50 earlier this year, so it quickly occurred to me that both of them would have been 17 in 1987, going to high school in Naperville. It was the next paragraph that made my blood run cold. After reading it, I learned that my mother and father, the people I had lived with and known my entire life, had been interrogated on speculation of first-degree murder. They were the last people to have been seen with the boy, but they were never prosecuted due to lack of evidence. I sat there in shock for a good five minutes, questioning everything I knew about my parents. I told myself several times that they were not murderers, and the fact that they had been with the victim the same day he was killed was purely coincidental. I became more confident that this was the truth, and finally looked back at the article to see if there was any more information, which there was. At the bottom of the page was a picture of the murdered boy. It was Rupert. When I tell people online, they always jump to these three conclusions. One, they're ghosts. Two, I have a really classy attic. And three, I'm lying. But I promise I'm not. I wouldn't lie to you. My parents are selfless. They do this for my well-being. I was a bit of a rascal as a toddler. My mom used to say I did enough wandering for a lifetime in those two years alone so I don't really roam around all that much nowadays. They wanted to make sure that the space I do have is all my own, so a long time ago they decided to let me have this entire floor all to myself. I've been here for like 20 years now. I grew up here. I'm safe here. They know this. They just want to keep me safe, and honestly, I love them to the world and back for that reason alone. I was about 17 when I heard my mom's voice through the door upstairs. It was hard to hear from my spot, but she sounded so happy. She was pregnant with my little brother. I could hear the tears in her voice when she described him. I'll be happy if he comes out healthy, but I'll be happier if he comes out smart, she'd joke. And I was so happy for her, for dad, for all of us. They deserved it. I wondered after our conversation if my brother would come live in the house with me when he got older. I was a little annoyed that I'd have to share my space, but mom and dad said that I didn't have to let my brother stay with me if I didn't feel like it. I was so relieved that they saw it from my perspective. You guys get it, right? I'm way older. It would be weird to constantly have to censor myself and, like, act super different just because I had to live in the same room as a little kid. This house doesn't have much. It's a pretty open floor plan. It's not like I could hide away whenever I wanted to, you know, do some adult stuff. So Jake joined our family, finally. I loved when they brought him down to visit. Even better, mom got her wish. Only wandering Jake ever did was from the house to the attic. He's still a little smarty now, too. If 
five years old and he had the layout of the house memorized like the back of his hand. Last night, he comes down to visit with some dinner. He's still at that age where he stumbles through some words, but his sentences are usually clear as day. And then mom and dad went upstairs and got the pictures. I had to laugh at that. What upstairs, Jake? Can't get any more upstairs than the attic. But I let him continue with his story of looking at old photographs of our family and laughing on mom's laugh. He stops and I look up from my plate. He fiddles with the chain. I ignore the chafe against my wrist. So I asked mom and dad if I could go outside to play and they got really mad. No kidding, Jake. But I let him continue. I just said I was kind of bored at home. I didn't mean to sound rude. And he probably didn't. I didn't either. Back then. But it's never too early to learn that you shouldn't throw a lit match in a loving home. He looked up at me for a moment with those adorable eyes, quivering lips, the whole nine yards, before casting his gaze down again. And mom said if I said anything like that again, I could just stay in the basement here and be like you. I'm a bit selfish, I know. I love my personal space, but honestly, I wouldn't be mad if Jake joined me, even if he does call this place the basement. It would suck to take care of him those first few months, and I would miss hearing his stupid little kid voice, but it gets lonely sometimes. I told her no, he added after a minute. He picks at the rust on the chain until I shake his hand off. Why does he always call this place the basement? I told her I wouldn't wander. I promised I wouldn't. Pinky promised. She was so happy. She said she wishes you were as smart as me. He looked up once more. She said if you were, you could have kept your legs and tongue too.